Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Have you ever had the fantasy, I've had this fantasy many times, of just like quitting everything and running away? Maybe not running away, but kind of running away, just absolutely changing your life, leaving behind your job and all, a lot of your daily responsibilities to completely switch it up. You're about to hear the story of somebody who did that, who walked away from an, a really high-powered job. Uh, he was ben, – Ben Fetter is his name, and he was the CEO of a huge uh, video game company, Take-Two Entertainment. I think they, they, they've done – huge uh, video games like Grand Theft Auto. He was the CEO of this thing, and he realized that he didn't have the relationship with his children that he really wanted, and that was really taking a toll on his family. He has four kids, and he decided he was going to take the kids and his wife. Obviously, this wasn't just him deciding. He consulted his wife and his children before doing this, but they all signed on to go to Bali for a year. And it's a really interesting story. He's written a book about it, and uh, you're going to hear him tell it. And uh, you'll hear him talk about uh, the role of meditation in all of this because that became a big thing that he was doing in Bali and w- what it meant for his uh, life when he came back. And I push him on this because I suspect some of you are already thinking this. All right, well, this guy was the CEO of some big company. He's got a ton of money. He can just take off a year and go to Bali. But he has a lot of interesting things to say about the fact that taking a sabbatical in your life is actually doable. That if you take a hard look at the stories you're telling yourself about why you can't uh, make a change like this, that they his argument is that your inner uh, opposition to this idea will often fall apart under close scrutiny and – he talks about ways in which you can actually do this, and there's a way to have this kind of perspective shift uh, in your own life without being as radical geographically as he got. So Ben Fetter's coming up. It, this is a really interesting interview. It really got me thinking a lot about how I organize my own life. That's coming up. Uh, let's get to your voicemails. Here's number one. Hey, Dan. What I'm having a problem with is focusing solely on my breath. It simply is difficult for me to have open awareness because I've been meditating and focusing solely on my breath for so long that when a guided meditation directs me to something else such as sound or feeling or light, I have a hard time focusing on that once my next breath comes up. I'm wondering what I can do to not solely focus on the breath, but be more aware of other things going on during that time, which leads me into my second question. When you're sick or have a cold or a cough, how can you meditate effectively when you can't breathe effectively? This is Jeff from Detroit. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. I'm going to give you my opinion here. I should say, though, in the future, we're, we're, we're going to be bringing in actual meditation teachers to answer some of these questions because uh, we did a survey not long ago, and that was one of the requests from you, the listeners. So we're, we're, we listened, and we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're working on that. Um, and in fact, 
Next week, we're doing an all voicemail edition of the podcast, and we're bringing in uh, one of my all-time favorite teachers and one of my dear friends, Jeff Warren, who's going to be with me to answer your questions for the whole for the whole whole episode. So, all that being said, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you my opinion uh, as somebody who's n- not a teacher but does quite a bit of meditation, um, which is so what. So what if if you you can't do other kinds of meditation, uh, open awareness, focusing on noise? The, the breath can take you all the way, all the way to where I don't know. But like it just if the rest of your meditation career is focused on the breath, great. Uh, and uh, you know if you're using the app or using some other app or whatever to do guided meditations, just stick to the breath ones. To me, I don't hear a huge problem with that. And it also seems to me the fact that you're uh, so good at being focused on the breath seems to me that you have good powers of concentration. So, um, yeah, unless you feel that somehow you're missing out on some key part of the meditative experience by not doing these other practices, uh, I wouldn't get too hung up on it. Just do do go with the breath for a while. Um, And also, I've just noticed in my own brief meditation career that – it tends to go through phases where you're on one practice in a really uh, dogged way uh, or an ardent way, and then some other practice some, for some reason becomes more attractive. You switch from the breath to open awareness or to metta or loving kindness slash friendliness meditation. It's all fine, and this may be just a phase or maybe the thing you do for the rest of your meditation life, and that that also would be fine. So. I'm not sure that's the advice you were looking for, but that's that. That's I've been thinking about your question since it was it was uh, submitted to me uh, uh, not long ago, and and that's that's the answer that, that that keeps that I keep coming back to. And then then when you have a cold, I know you you it, you get stuffy, but you're still breathing. So uh, I'm a little confused there. So you can um, just. Yeah, I would focus on the breath as it. Uh, it sounds maybe you're focusing on the breath as it comes in through the nose, and so that that's that's it's frustrating because you you're maybe breathing through your mouth or whatever. But maybe you can switch your focus to the abdomen there because, as far as I know, that 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 shouldn't change much even when you have a cold, even though the whole thing is annoying. So yeah, that's 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 my response. And and for anybody else who has a cold and you know it, it doesn't have the the the. The issue Jeff has where, you know, having trouble switching away from the breath to other forms of meditation. If you have a cold and you are uh, really used to focusing on the breath as it comes through the nostrils, uh, I think having during that period um, might be actually a good time to switch to other forms of meditation, such as open awareness or sound or loving kindness. All right, Jeff, thank you. Appreciate that. Let's do uh, another voicemail. Hi, Dan. This is Anne calling from Los Angeles. Love your show. Um, And my question is that I um, have recently started, um, when I meditate, uh, uh, involuntary movement. I'm I'm immediately pulled into movement. And um, I want to know your perspective on if I should meditate on stillness, I, I don't really want to do this because I'm, I'm a mover. I've been practicing um, different various Kundalini um, practices, which is very much into the movement. And I'm actually going, you motivated me to go on to a retreat 
at Spirit Rock um, in about five weeks, and I've reached out to them, too, because I'm really struggling on if I should stop this movement thing um, or meditate on saying to stop moving or if I can just kind of go with it and, you know, be there. Um, but anyway, so uh, if you could give me perspective on this, um, because, again, the research I've done on the web it kind of seems like the Buddhist perspective is to um, practice to be still. So anyway, um, I really appreciate your your work. Um, keep it up, and um, thanks so much. Okay, bye. Thank you. I've been thinking about this. I've been struggling with this one, too, because I have so many follow-ups I'd like to ask, which is why I'm glad you're going on a retreat at Spirit Rock, which is a, an a incredible retreat center uh, north of San Francisco. I'm glad you're going there because all the teachers there are deeply qualified. And I think sitting with a teacher, uh, and maybe on day two where you'll or three where you'll get some one-on-one time with a teacher, I think they're going to really, really be able to give you good advice on this. But I, just from a, a high, high level, and I talked about this recently on a podcast, uh, one of the recent episodes, it's not uncommon to have involuntary movement during meditation, uh, and um, I don't think it's that big of a deal. Uh, as as I believe I said recently, Joseph Goldstein, my teacher, uh, once pointed out both that it's, it's normal and that y- there may be some ways in which you're subtly feeding, artificially kind of feeding the movement, and you can kind of look for that and maybe slow that down a little bit. It is true that generally speaking, Buddhist meditation or mindfulness meditation is focused on stillness, unless, of course, we're explicitly doing a moving meditation. But when you're seated, we, we're we not moving much, uh, if, if, if at all. Um, but involuntary movement is something that's that is super common. But again, it gets a little tricky because of the issue that Joseph raised uh, around there may be ways in which you're kind of actually voluntarily moving that you're not quite aware of on some level. So look, looking at that uh, can can be interesting. But I, I notice for myself uh, that when I get really concentrated, that there's a certain amount of rocking back and forth. And so I just play with the instruction that Joseph gave, that there may be a certain amount of involuntary movement that you can't do anything about. That's the nature of involuntary movement. But to the extent that it's voluntary, you may want to, uh, look at that and see if if uh, if you're feeding it. Um, all right, good luck and and uh, uh, I'm I'm really excited to hear that you're going on retreat. I think that's a great idea. Ben Fetter, our guest this week, uh, he is currently an executive at a senior executive at a company called Tencent, which is a Chinese global conglomerate that dominates, according to his bio, the internet related media and technology industries over in China. They do a lot of stuff here in North America as well. And Ben is the president of International Partnerships for Tencent. He used to, as I said before, be the CEO of Take-Two Interactive, which is a massive video game uh, company. Ben left uh, Take-Two in order to go to Bali with his four kids and his wife and wrote about it in a book, a new book called Take Off Your Shoes. And his story is super interesting, and as we said before, lots of questions about whether this is doable for the rest of us, and I found his pushback to be super interesting. So here we go. Here's Ben Fetter. All right. All right. So I always start with the same question. 
which is how did you get interested in meditation? How did I get interested in meditation? Um, I was in an airport one day and I came across a book by a guy named Yungir Rinpoche. Yeah. Mingyur. Yungi Mingyur Rinpoche. Mon- yeah, he's been on this podcast. Has he? Yes. He's back? Because he went on Walkabout for a little while and for disappeared. Three years, for three I think. years. And, and almost then, died. He came and told the I, whole story. I don't on know podcast. the story. Not going to yes. listen to that story. It's great, actually. It's worth listening to. He's a fascinating guy. He is a fascinating guy. So, I mean, he, you know, so you know his story. He kind of, he writes, he wrote a book called Joyful Wisdom, and I read about it. And so his story is, is you know. Um, but our listeners might not. So might go not. ahead and tell it. So he grows up in Nepal, which uh, with what he would describe today as severe anxiety disorder. And in a world where there's lots to be anxious about, right? He lived in a, in a house on the side of a mountain, you know, that could get blown off at any time and has to go down and get water. And, and he, he grows up really anxious about this. And so he finds himself, his, I think his father was a monk also, he finds himself in a monastery. Anyway, he kind of, he ends up making his way to the West and he sees the shining cars and the malls and he thinks, wow, everybody here must be so happy. <laughs> And then he kind of realizes what's going on. And they're driving to the malls, but their shoulders are up at their ears. And um, so he goes about on this inquiry of what's really happening in people's minds and offers a solution, which is mindful meditation. And I found the whole thing really compelling, and I thought it was really interesting. And at the time, I was really hard-charging, really had to win at all costs. And um, What were you doing? I was the CEO of a public company called Take-Two Interactive. Which – which, those who don't know. Which, which creates games like Grand Theft Auto, uh, Red Dead Redemption, uh, NBA 2K, and, you know, really great titles like that. So and big it was a, company. And it was a big company and it was a turnaround. It was a troubled company. When Massively competitive industry. Massively, yes. Um, and a lot of very colorful personalities. <laughs> and um, uh, and the truth is I was really enjoying it. I really um, – uh, I loved my what I was doing. Uh so, I mean, it kind of appealed to me, but the other thing that went on at the time was that because it was a turnaround, I was circling the globe multiple times a year. Um, and as the years went on, I kind of realized that I really didn't know my children anymore. Um, How many? And kids? I have four kids. And when I started, my youngest was three years old, and then she was turning seven, and she didn't really um, have much to do with me. And I remember walking in, it was the most benign moment. Um, I walked home, walked in my apartment from school one day. Sorry, from work one day, and um, I saw my. I knocked on the door of my son's room, and I said, "Hey, Sam." He kind of grunted something um, intelligible, and then at dinner he just grunted some more. And I realized that while I've been circling the globe, he's been sequestered in his room um, doing his work because he's a serious student, and he'd go to a competitive high school, and then he'd really be barricaded in there. And uh, I realized it's like, okay, he goes to high school, and then he's off to college, and he's gone. It's over. And meanwhile, I'm just like running around, doing my thing, enjoying it, um, but still realized that there was a cost to everything I was doing. And I had this moment, it was benign, but I had this moment of like, well, this is where it happens. This is where fathers and husbands become the men they never intended to be, right? Everybody, nobody goes into these situations kind of thinking, oh, I'm just going to abandon them and focus on my job. Um, and I was just an ambitious guy. It wasn't like, it wasn't superhero. I was just an ambitious guy. And I was kind of pushing, pushing, pushing. And so between, um, you know, that kind of uh, baseline anxiety that you have by uh, running a company like that, shareholders and stakeholders everywhere, and uh, and realizing what was going on at home, I just sort of I realized I needed a break. And um, 
I went to my board one day and I said, look, you've, I've done everything you've asked me to do. We've taken the company from death's door to one of the best positioned companies in the industry, in an exciting industry. I owe my family some time. Um, and Often when people step down from something and say, I'm doing it to send, spend more time right. with my it's family, just, it's it just a line. they got fired. Right. And um, I remember actually the lawyer who was in the boardroom at the time, uh, when he came to talk to me after, he goes, I, I just thought you got fired. <laughs> I was like, no, actually, um, I just made a decision for me and for my family. Um, in fact, I told the board I wanted to take a sabbatical and I wanted to come back. And I couldn't blame them. The company had been in a lot of trouble. And I sort of said, I'll be back in a year. And it's like, no, that's not happening. You know, the CEO doesn't get to leave. It's just too goofy. And I, I totally understood that. Um, but I was prepared to sort of like, look, if they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. And I'd do what I had always done in my career and figure something out and start again. And that was fine. But it wasn't like you just wanted to take a year off. You actually had <laughs> – the plan was significantly more ambitious than that. Um, no, I'm not sure it was actually. Really? Because you ended um, up going for it. Um, I did, but just because who I am, right? Um, I see, I see, I see. So I go to, so I go to, so we, so we, I pulled my four kids out of school and the whole family decamped to Bali, Indonesia. Well, that's what I meant by ambitious. Oh, I see. Um, I thought you were kind of way, you know, at, on the other end of, uh, of that sabbatical. No, no, no. I meant, I meant, sorry. I meant the plan. It wasn't like, I just want to take a year off to, you know, make sure I help my kid in my home, his homework and in, in our apartment in New York city, you went to Bali. Right. So uh, for some reason, it had to be at the farthest ends of the earth for me to kind of really get away. <laughs> it was funny because my wife had read um, uh, A Year in Provence, which is kind of an older book. A family that t- took a sabbatical, but I went from London to France and, uh, you know, realized it just wasn't far enough because their first six months, they were just hosting all their friends. <laughs> and um, uh, so we decided we just needed to go someplace far away. We wanted to be some- do something creative and something really interesting and have our kids have a cultural experience. We toyed with kind of just traveling the world, honestly, and I'm glad we didn't do that. Um, we did a little bit of traveling on the back end of it and realized you get tired of being a tourist pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I thought it was important for them to really learn a culture and get themselves out of their New York mindset. They totally had that New Yorker view of the world, which is there's Manhattan and everything else is somewhere else. And um, and That's not it was, true? It was, it's not apparent. You would know. Uh you know, and so it was wonderful to see, especially my older kids, kind of this awakening that they had when you – know, forget the meditation kind of awakening, but just even a political awakening. They went to an amazing school in Bali called the Green School, which has a bespoke ed, um, environmental curriculum. And it really tries to teach kids to be global citizens. And it's so not the attitude in New York of just, just get into a good college. And, um, uh, and it really was eye-opening for them. Um, in a way that's lasted uh, many, many years later, um, the environmental aspect of it, the global citizen aspect of it, the sense of having a joy of learning instead of just getting the grades and getting into good colleges and the achievement orientation of all of it. And um, uh, that's totally stayed with all of us. But to watch that awakening for, for ourselves and for our children and sort of see how they reoriented their values and their priorities was um, – was a gift to them and is a gift to to me and my wife. I can hear this little voice of um, just channeling a listener out there who's thinking, this is some first world problems that you have, you, you, and a luxury that you had that most people won't ever get to. to okay. Exercise. So I, I get this and I'm, yeah. I, I really, I push back a little bit. Go. Um, because, and, and I shouldn't, right? I should just accept it because everybody believes it. 
Um, no. But, I, but I'll push back a little bit. No, yes. So it turns out Bali is a bit of a mecca for uh, people going on sabbatical. Eat, pray, and, love. And I ran into all sorts of people there. Most of the people there were not people of great means. Um, there were nurses and teachers and farmers and photographers and, um, you know, God knows what, right? It wasn't bankers and lawyers and consultants. There were some of those too, but it wasn't full of those. The book that I read to prepare myself for the sabbatical was something called Escape 101, How to Go on Sabbatical Without Losing Your Money or Your Mind. <laughs> and it was not written for guys with means. It was written for people dying in their cube and wanting to do something with their lives. And, um, and the prescription was, look, have a plan, have a mindset uh, of doing this. And I don't care if it's one year, three years, or five years from now, have a plan. Don't go to the movies over the weekend. Save the money so that you can have that amazing experience in five years from now. And so when I told people that I was going on sabbatical, they said, oh, I wish I could do that. I was like, well, then do it. And then you hear the litany of responses of why they can't do it. And, you know, I had made this liberating decision for myself. And I just realized it was all nonsense. And you think about um, what goes on in people's minds and uh, the excuses they make about why they can't do something. And you realize it's all nonsense. It's funny because I'm, I'm sitting here thinking I could never do that. And I feel like it's totally not nonsense why I couldn't do it, well, look, but it probably look, it's, is. It's, <laughs> I mean, it depends what you define. Look, I know plenty of people sort of like, I've got clients, I've got um, a business, I've got partners, I've got all this stuff. And I mean, it's levels of difficulty, I suppose. And um, if you really, really, really were desperate to do it, I'm sure you'd find a way. Right. I'm not desperate to do it. Right. Um, right. So I'm just saying it's yeah. part. It's partly mindset. Um, having said that, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess it was a privileged thing to do on the one hand. On the other hand, I walked away from a lot. No, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good pushback. Not the walking away f- from a lot, although that's, that's not nothing, yeah. but you have to have, you have to be pretty privileged to walk away from a lot. It's more the, the first part of that argument that I think it's true. If you go to Bali or any of the other, enter any of these other meccas for seekers, you will find all sorts of people of varying means. Um, and I think Bali in particular, because Elizabeth Gilbert wrote Eat, Pray, Love, has become a, a, a big... It's, it's partly that, and it's partly Bali actually is a special, magical place. I've been there, and I agree. It's in, I, I played with baby tigers there once. It's, it's a <laughs> phenomenal uh, place. I, no, no question. And it also has an unimpeachable spiritual pedigree, uh, right. for sure. So there's a lot a lot to recommend it. Um so, so your your point is well taken. I'm glad you didn't just accept it and push back. I I suspect there are some people out there who are really really struggling economically. Who this will be far fetched for them, or if they have little kids, especially with special needs, there are a lot of people who can't pull this off. But the larger point that actually, if you take a hard look at your life, many people, including many people who would immediate who would otherwise or sort of reflexively reject the idea of being able to do something like this. They actually can. I think so. I also think that, you know, one question I get asked, not get asked, was asked once that I thought was really interesting. It's like, what recommendation do you have for people who want to take sabbatical but can't take their, uh, can't take the time or don't, can't afford it? And so regardless of that pushback, right? So I think the question comes back to mindful meditation, which is how do you take a sabbatical in your mind? How do you take a sabbatical in your life without having to, you know, throw it all up in the air and see where the pieces land. 
And um, I think it is possible. And I think that kind of brings us back to a world of mindful meditation and how you're able to organize your life and organize your mind so that your life becomes a sabbatical instead of, you know, having to escape for a little mm. bit in order to discover something new. I escaped to discover meditation, but I certainly could have discovered meditation before that. And um, I had the time and the inclination and take a sabbatical in your mind instead of having to physically leave. And I, I do think that's possible. So I want to I want to hear much more about your experiences with meditation, your the family's experiences in Bali. But but just say more about what you just said because I think it's a really interesting idea. Make your life a sabbatical. How, I, so there's a moment in the book um, uh, where I uh, I go on a uh, bicycle ride with a friend of mine who's um, I, I don't quite know how to describe him. But he's on his own, he's been on his own journey around all the stuff, and uh, and at some point I say casually, you know, would you ever consider a sabbatical? And he responds, you know, my life is a sabbatical. Which was a, um, one of the guys I work with kind of was reading the book. And he texts me in the middle of the night and sort of said, and all he says was, if somebody told me life was sabbatical, I'd be really pissed off. <laughs> um, so I, I guess it was kind of a little bit of a competitive, you know, nudge. But, um, uh, but I, you know, but it's an interesting, it is an interesting thought actually. And, you know, can you do it? Can you organize your life so that, um, you're not carried away by the currents of whatever it is that carries your mind away into some place of stress and anxiety. Um, and A, can you organize your life? Can you organize your day? Can you organize your family? Can you organize your time so that you have the time to you know, center yourself and breathe and um, ground yourself? And a lot of, a lot of the book is about you know, finding your own holy ground. The title of the book comes from a poem by a poet named David White, who, um, I don't know if Bill's himself, but I've heard him build as kind of like the corporate poet hmm. um, because he speaks a lot about um, what's in, you know, uh, the condition of uh, a lot of people in corporations. And he wrote a poem called Fire in the Earth in which he invokes the image of Moses at the burning bush. And it's about kind of Moses realizing that he has been on holy ground his entire life. And um, and he reads this poem. He talks about how he, one day he reads this poem in a public setting and somebody comes over to him and says, you know, the Hebrew word for the, that the Bible uses to for take off, and as in take off your shoes, the Hebrew word for that is the same word that the Bible uses for an animal shedding its skin. Mm. And I thought that was such a wonderful metaphor for what I was trying to accomplish, right? To in order to shed something old, in order to become come to emerge into something fresher, potentially stronger, um, and and better, and um, some combination of the search for your own holy ground on the one hand, and through that emerging into something that is greater than yourself, is something that you can do without having to leave. Your, own, your, 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 your current ground, but can you take your current ground and find your holy ground? And um, uh, there was a lot that I did in Bali in, in terms of taking off your shoes where you're, you're either in a meditation cushion or a yoga mat and you're barefoot and you, know, you sense the ground that you're on and you imagine yourself being on, on your own holy ground and realizing the love that comes from that ground and the love that comes from finding your own center. And that, to me, is the magic. Was the magic of my sabbatical, and I think it's a magic that anybody can um, tap into without having to get on an airplane and travel for twenty four hours. 
Right. It's it's uh it's about seeing your life in a different way. Uh it's what? a perspective shift, not necessarily a geographical uh relocation. Right. Right. And but it requires that kind of witnessing that meditators strive for, right? Seeing yourself from the outside, watching your thoughts. Yes. It requires that shift. Yeah. I mean another thing that could help I think there are a couple of ways mindfulness meditation helps a lot would be one avenue. I would say gratitude would be another um, because I think a lot of us are ingrates. Uh, We we don't – Us? You and me? (laughs) Us too. Uh, uh, But a lot of us uh, by which I'm referring to homo sapiens uh, don't take stuff for granted. That's that's where we're kind of wired for threat detection. You know, we're not wired for – uh, the counting of blessings. I think training and compassion uh, could be another way to sort of shift the way you see things. I think there are a lot of ways in here. Yes. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after this. I often think when I go on a meditation retreat, it's like a plane that has lost its landing gear and hits a foamed runway. You know, it's it's just like a boom. I mean, it's not dangerous because there's foam there but it's jarring uh and so i think about your transition from ceo of a huge and hugely profitable company in as we've discussed a incredibly it wasn't when i took it over. No, it wasn't, yes well <laughs> right. but it is now i'd say yeah. the stock price this year or or recently was no it's been extraordinary success. yeah um but in this really exciting growing industry uh to go from being in the maelstrom in that way to what is on your itinerary every day in Bali. Just talk to me about that. Oh, so this is the topic of conversation at the kitchen table before we left. It was like, you know, with my wife, it was like, what do you, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I, I mean, there's, when you're, when you're in that position, there's stimulation coming at you from all directions. And sometimes it's overwhelming as we know. Um, but it's a ton of stimulation and you can imagine what that, you know, your brain is crackling all the time. And I had this notion of what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And, um, you know, I find, <laughs> I find that the, the time just fills up <laughs> and, um, I did, and, and I'm not, I'm, you know, despite my wanting to take a sabbatical, I can't help it being kind of achievement oriented. And, um, in a way the book is about kind of not being achievement oriented and just being instead of doing all the time. And the irony of it, of course, is I had to turn it into a book and publish it and kind of do something <laughs> with it. Um, but when I got there, I um, I didn't know what I was going to do, and I um, I like to read, and I started reading, and I came across a book that was written thirty years ago um, by a woman named I'm forgetting her first name, last name was Edwards, and um, it was called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, and it's some, it was peripherally related to neuroplasticity, which was what I was in meditation and neuroplasticity, which was what I was really interested in reading about, um, and she had this notion of like, look. Everybody um, can learn to draw. Um, the trick is learning how to see. And the impediment to learning how to see is that we all think with our, uh, which side is it? On the right side, on the left side of our brains, which is kind of words and numbers, and that's kind of how we're trained all day long. And somehow after, uh, after kindergarten, we forget to think about our, the other side of the brain, which thinks in terms of shapes and sizes and shadow and all of that. And she had a series of exercises where she figured out how to quiet, quiet down the left side of the brain in order for the right side to be coaxed out. And I thought, this is nonsense. 
and but I'll try it because I had time. And um, and my level of artistic skill was zero. I could maybe draw a stick figure. And so the first exercise he had is like, well, here's a here's um, uh, a, a, a facsimile of Picasso's line drawing of Igor Stravinsky. See if you can copy that on a piece of paper. So I take a pencil and a piece of paper and I try to copy it and it's a disaster. Couldn't do it at all. She goes, now what I want you to do is kind of turn the page upside down and draw it that way. Draw it upside down. So, and if you can, even cover up pieces at a time so you don't really see the nose and the eyes and the ears. And instead, you just focus on the line and the angle and what touches what and where. And so I did this exercise and then I turned it right side up again. I looked at it and it was almost an exact replica. And it blew me away. And she went on these exercise after exercise and I kind of – I was really just – curious about what was going on in my in my head in my brain and how this was possible and then also curious about how it was possible for a man my age that i was learning a new skill like this how old were you at the time 47 okay and um i'm about to turn 47 it's well i have i got the christmas gift for you <laughs> and um so uh, so I went about doing this, and because of Bali is where it is, I ended up joining an artist group in Bali, and um, and there'd be live models and this and that, and I'd just go and I'd start it, and I went around, and I, you know, if I had trouble, I'd go to artists and ask them questions, and I just soaked up as much information as I could. Did you ever and, think when you were sitting there sketching, what if my board could see me now? Um. No. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't. You were able to shut that out. Well, what I didn't shut out was kind of like, how far can I take this kind of craziness? And um, and the farther I took the craziness, the more joy I got from it. And because nobody back home would understand any of this. And I, you know, and I still to this day, I don't know why I wrote the book, but the book in many ways is trying to make sense of all of this for me. And uh, um, one thing led to another and – uh, I taught myself to be an artist, and today I'm. I still do it. I, I that went from pencil and paper to charcoal and graphite, and now it's oil painting. Really? And, um, and you and George W. Bush? Well, actually, George W. Bush's stuff. He's much. He's. I think he's a much more sympathetic human being now than he was back then when he was running the country because of this. And he will say that art has changed his life, and I know exactly what he's talking about. He's really good um, for where he comes from. And I feel this, you know, for myself, it's totally changed my life. Um, and it's meditative in the way of, um, I can't pronounce this guy's name, but Michael. Oh, I thought you were going to say Mingyur Rinpoche. No, 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 no. This is long kind of, I don't know what it is, Hungarian maybe. Long, oh, the guy name. who wrote the book uh, Focus? No, it's on flow. Flow, sorry, yes. yes. Uh, um, I was sorry. Focus. I dare you to pronounce his name. No, I, I know a lot of people who can, uh, but I can't. It's something like. I want to say Shali Kashvili. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> but it's not that. So I read. So I read his Ch stuff. Chikesh Mahai or something like no, that. No, no, the first one was right. I think so. No, I think actually, I think it's the second one. It's something like Chikesh. It's something in there. Anyway, the anyway, book is called Flow. I own it, but I have never read it. And but Mik he describes Mikhail or something like yeah, that. Mikhail's, yeah, Mikhail is his yeah. first name, and uh, but he describes what I experienced um, in terms of just shutting down the chatter of your mind, getting so involved in what you're doing. That um, that it shuts down all the chatter, yep. um, and that it's more than that, right? I mean, it's almost—I um, don't, I don't quite know how to describe it—but it's—but uh, 
time falls away, space falls away. I mean, there's like nothing between you and the universe. And, um, and it's the most peaceful place to be, right? It's kind of, I guess what people describe as nirvana. I'm sure it's not, but, um, but it's, uh, but you're kind of in a different world. You're in a totally different world. And I had never, ever experienced that before. That's really, never I'd, experienced it before. Wow. I'd never experienced flow before. I'd never been so involved in a task like that where um, everything fell away and I was just alone in the world. And, and every now and then when I'd get there, so I kind of experienced that. And, but if my wife or one of my kids kind of interrupted me at that, one of those things, I found it so jarring. I'm like, you know, I just, I was startled by it. I was like, huh. and I had no patience for it. Huh. Did, so how much, um, so, so, anyway, had, that's, so that's what I did. So day to day, I kind of did that. And, um, Bali has a lot of artists and I'd visit other artists and I kind of, I just turned myself into a total left brain kind of person as a break from being a right brain kind of person or the other way around, whatever. But you whatever were also meditating? I was meditating and I was doing yoga, um, which I, if you're, if you're doing it as exercise, it's not great, but if you're doing it with the breathing, I find it's meditative meditation plus movement. Yeah. I agree with that. Um, but you have to be, you have to be focused on the breath. And I describe a lot of, um, situations. In fact, I took some inspiration from your book too, because I kind of find it's, I find one of the great things about your book is it's so hard to describe what's in your head when you're meditating. I think you did a really good job with it. Oh, thanks. And, um, and so I kind of really try to describe sometimes what's in my head, either doing yoga or meditating. And one or two of the, there are one or two moments, which are, you know, in my opinion, really vulnerable. And you sort of ask about like, well, would anybody in New York understand any of this when you're in Bali doing this? And I, you know, I just, for whatever reason, decided to expose it in the book. So, so the, to tell, tell me about those vulnerable, vulnerable moments then. So there was one, well, I'll give you some vulnerability. I kind of, I do protect people in the book and I can protect myself also a little bit, I guess. Gotcha. Um, uh, I, you know, I just, I remember once um, being just overcome by this wave of rage um, out of nowhere, right? I was just kind of doing my thing, breathing, and it's like, wham, hit me like a tsunami. Yoga or meditation? Um, uh, it, was, it happened twice, actually, once, once in yoga and once in meditation. And um, I was so curious about it, too. It's like this, this moment where you kind of you feel the rage on the one hand, and then you're sort of like, wow, where'd that come from? Mm. And, um, and I didn't even understand the rage. I didn't, it just, and, um, and what I decided to do at that moment was to experience it as fully as I could. Mm-hmm. That's the move. And um, just take it all in and, and focus your attention on it and breathe in it. And, you know, eventually it kind of melts away, um, as all emotions do. But it was so powerful, and I don't know that I would have been able to experience that had I not been focused on meditation, yoga, and breathing. And somehow it just, so that those experiences come along. And then, and then generally I just think, I feel like I walk around in the world with a much lighter touch. Um, I thought the title of your book was really good. Cause it's like, it's not, we're not promising you bliss. It's 10% happier is, yeah. is kind of where yeah. you are. And I always say it and, compounds annually. Like you can get better at this. Oh, it's 10 Ten percent compounded. When I talk in finance language, you're talking to me. Yeah, um, uh, this is this is your love language. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, uh, so it it has an amazing. It does have an amazing effect, and it's sure. hard to explain to people. So, so <laughs> you 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 set off with this kind of pretty big 
grand goal of shedding your skin and and seeing life, uh, you know, as holy ground. Where are you now? I mean, what kind of impact? You, you spoke a little bit about it just a few sentences ago, but where are you now? How is your life different now that you're home and back in the mix? And what are you doing now, et cetera, et cetera? Well, I'm definitely back in the mix, and um, uh, and but I I'm, but I'm in the mix in a very different way, and I've maintained um, the three practices that I developed in Bali: meditation, yoga, and um, painting. Um. And those are those are kind of my centering activities, and where I kind of discover holy ground. Um, so those activities help me um, pursue the kind of life that where every day is a sabbatical. Um, and then I also I find that I, um, you know, I have this matrix move, right? I kind of like I can slow things down in my mind, and mm-hmm. I can sort of duck when I need to duck, and. Um, um, respond to the world in a much more measured way um, than just reacting all the time. And um, anyway, so what I'm doing now is I work for um, uh, Tencent, which is there are basically two giant internet companies in China. One is Tencent, the other is Alibaba. And um, Tencent is the world's largest video game company. And I'm, I'm kind of their guy in the U.S. And so helping helping them build their business and developing partnerships and um, uh you know, trying to figure out how to grow the business. And they're an amazing organization, amazing people, and I'm really, really enjoying it. And um, and I was a little concerned when um, the book came out. It's like, okay, what am I, my new boss going to think and all that? And there was this one uh, moment where, like, somebody said to me, I was at a, a business lunch, and there was a lull in the conversation, and, they, and somebody says to me, he goes, you know, Ben, I had such a shock the other day. I was like, oh, really, why? Tell me about your shock. And he said, well, I was reading my Kindle at night and I just turned it on and there was an ad for a book by a guy of this very same name that you have. <laughs> anyway, so, but you know, the truth is they've, they, they've all read it. They've passed it around and, um, and they love it. So, oh, that's great. So I'm really happy. In fact, they've asked me to teach yoga in China, which I think is a blast. And so I'm kind of incorporating it all in there. And um, I, you know, I don't know, 10% happier. Maybe I got 12. I don't know. <laughs> You know, I'm in New York. I have to beat the index. That's right. So. Well, yeah, of course. Of right. course. Uh, do you think, because a lot of people fear when it comes to all the things that you've done, yoga, meditation, art as a sort of life enhancement, escaping the world for a year, all of those things. People, people look at those, especially in the hard-charging professions, and think, will that erode my effectiveness? You're yeah. now back yeah. in the mix. Yeah. You're, so you're, this is an interesting case study. Are you better now than you were or You know, or not? I, I think, I think, I, I think it's, it's a superpower. Um, I think it's a tool that I, I bring to the table. Um, but I, I know plenty of people who think that without kind of having to beat themselves up every day, all day long, they wouldn't pursue their goals or they wouldn't be as successful or anything like that. I, I don't, it's hard to know, right? I don't, I don't really know. I kind of, I don't think I'm any less successful. I think in many ways I'm achieving more than I've ever achieved. Um, and, um, and doing it with a smile on my face instead of just, you know, tense all the time. So I don't think you lose your edge. I think in some ways just getting older, you lose your edge. Although I mentioned this to an executive, I ran into him. I had an executive coach when I was running take two and, um, I shouldn't say running leading, 
Um, and I bumped into her recently and I sort of mentioned to her, I was like, well, and she'd read the book and she thought it was eye opening and really enjoyed it. And, uh, and I said, you know, it's possible that all that, you know, you know, the U curve happiness, like at the 50, you kind of, mm-hmm. you know, people start getting happier. I was like, maybe all that's happened is I just got older. I think I've discovered something. Maybe all that's happened is I'm just getting older. And she looked at me, she goes, no, I coach a lot of people. Trust me. There are plenty of people after 50 that have, don't have any of the insight that you have into kind of what it means to live a good life. I think these things are multifactorial, right? I mean, that I always talk about in my case. Yeah. I can only speak from my own personal experience, but in my case, it's like marriage, maturation, meditation are the three things that would help me, would explain from my point of view why I'm significantly less of a jerk to myself and others than I was in my 20s and 30s. So, no, well, so what are the three M's? Marriage, meditation, and? Maturation. Maturation. Just, so getting older. Yes. Yeah. Um, I progressed yes. on the U curve. Yeah. And uh, I got married. I married well. And I meditate, and I think those three things are predominantly responsible. But it's hard for me to pick one of them and say, it's only this. Um, I try to think of myself as not ever really being a jerk, except to myself. And if we count that, being a jerk to myself, I'm, I'm, yes, I'm kinder to myself. I'm more optimistic than I've ever been. Um, And I am... uh, much more sympathetic to other people's human conditions as opposed to constantly feeling like I'm in competition with everybody around Mm -hmm. me. I feel much more cooperative and compassionate people around me. And I don't feel like I need to win every argument. I don't like somebody said one time, like, you know, you can go on a canoe trip with him and he'd win. And, um, I don't feel that way at all anymore. They were referring to you. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, or at least he tried to win. I don't know if he would win, but he tried to win. Um, and I don't, and I and I run into people like that all the time. And in China too, I kind of I mentor um, some of the younger guys and gals, which I really enjoy doing. Um, and I run into this baseline anxiety, and um, uh, you know this kind of whatever the opposite of awakened is um, deluded, deluded or whatever it is. And I see it. I can see myself in that in that person. And I wish I could impart some wisdom and I try to. And sometimes I say, you know, can we talk about that voice inside your head? And they look at me and they say, well, how do, what do you know what's going on inside my head? And I was like, Oh, please. Cause it goes inside everybody's head. <laughs> and you know, let's work on ways of quieting that. And it's also, and look, I, it's also entirely possible. That I've had my successes and I just, you know, I'm, I'm happy with what I've got and I'm not striving as much because, you know, I've had some success in my past and, um, and that's possible. It's possible that edge has come off, but I, I don't think so. <laughs> kind of, I argue with my wife about. In fact, just last night, you know, kind of pushing, you know, pushing myself harder, and she's like, you know, why do you, why are you pushing yourself so hard? I just that's in my nature. What can I tell you? I'm sensitive uh, to something about your condition, which is you have a meeting soon. So before yeah. we go, yeah. um, let's plug everything. Give us a get, remind us of the name of the book. Where can we find you on social media? Uh, anything you want uh, listeners to to tune into. Um, you know, the odd thing, by the way, is that all throughout the publication and the writing of this book, it was always kind of beside the point, you know, in terms of like, you know, why do I care about writing the book? Why do I care about publishing it? Why do I care about being successful? And I, you know, I can't quite help myself. So even the, the plugging of it, it's like, I don't know, buy the book, don't buy the book, doesn't really matter to me. But <laughs> um, uh, but if you wanted to buy the book, people have said it's a really good read and it's a really quick read. Um, 
It's just over 200 pages, and people say they fly through it because there's a lot of tension in the book um, or something, or the writing's good or something. Um, the uh, It's available wherever you can get a book. It's called Take Off Your Shoes. Author is Ben Fetter. Um, it's on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and independent bookstores. And um, I'm on benfetterauthor.com, and that's also my Twitter handle and um, uh, my Facebook handle. Awesome. Great job with this. Great. Thank you. Thank you. It was really a pleasure talking to you. Likewise. Likewise. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuel, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.